Welcome to the In Conversation with Joe Parfit podcast, sharing what I know to help others to grow. Everybody and welcome to this In Conversation Masterclass with my good friend and biryani maker, Mariam Naved, not Ottimo Fiore. <laughs> Mariam is not allowed to come and stay with me without bringing the ingredients for biryani. Um, so I've known Mariam for a number of years and um, she was just about born abroad, has got a husband from who's from German, who's of German-Italian extraction. Mariam has got a Pakistani poor passport, but has grown up in New York, Bahrain, and I've probably forgotten somewhere else. No? Uh, Yes, so we've got those places too. And she has lived in England, Denmark, Singapore, Dubai, Ghana, and is now in Lisbon, Portugal. Her children were born 3,000 miles apart on three separate continents. So her mobile life has continued from birth to now, and yes, it's messy. And Mariam is the author of This Messy Mobile Life. She has a blog called And Then We Move To. Her book came out two years ago, Mm -hmm. two years ago. And she's here to talk to us today about Um, about creating a panel of experts in order to give her book gravitas and to give herself authority. So welcome, Mariam. It's absolutely fantastic to have you here. I hope you can bring some of your Portuguese sunshine to us today. (laughs) I would love to, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be back. Uh, having a chat with you, even if it's virtual, but uh, yeah, (laughs) better than nothing. Lovely to have you here. Now, what really inspired me to ask you to do this In Conversation Masterclass today was the story you told me about when a journalist rang you up and wanted to interview you for an article and then blew you out and she knew you hadn't written a book. But could you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> I love that you remember that, Joe. Um, yes, I'd be happy to share uh, how my book journey got started. Um, so let me just set the scene for you. Um, I was sitting in my living room in Dubai. It was the year 2017 and it was dinner time in our household. So I was trying to feed both my kids who at the time were five and two year old. And, um, you know, there's spaghetti flying everywhere. It's a, it's a feral time uh, when all of a sudden uh, my phone rang. And, you know, I looked at it, not really looking at it. It was a US number. I thought, oh, it's probably just a friend or a family member calling. And I picked it up and um, it was a reporter from the Wall Street Journal on the other end, Joe. And um, she introduced herself and said she was writing an article about living this global life and raising a family overseas with multiple cultures and languages and that she had found me through my blog and then we moved to .com and she was interested in getting a quote from me to appear in the article that she was writing. 
And I said, sure, you know, just ignoring the chaos in front of me, trying to think on the spot, trying to give, a, you know, a good quote. And after I gave her what I thought was a good response, which she seemed to like, she said, oh, this is great. Um, can I just confirm, have you written a book on this topic? And I said, no, not yet. And, you know, uh, suddenly I could just feel the tone of the interview, just the tone of the phone call, just just switch. And after that exchange, I just felt so deflated because I had this sinking suspicion that because I had not written a book on the topic, hence I could not be considered an expert on the topic. Hence, it was likely that my code may not appear in this article. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, that's what that's exactly what happened. My quote never made it into that article, Joe. Um, and, and I already knew why. I already knew why. So, um, you know, rejection hurts, but rejection can also be this catalyst or be your wake up moment when you realize that you really want to turn things around. And uh, the book that might still be in your head <laughs> needs to come out <laughs> for um, for people to be able to see that and uh, take that into account. So this is my lovely catalyst story of uh, being rejected by the Wall Street Journal. And you know, the irony was that I'd been an economist in my previous life and the Wall Street Journal had never called me in my eight to nine years of a corporate career, Joe. But now that I was an expat writer, there they were on the other end of the phone. So, you know, opportunities come and you just never know from where and who is reading your work. But then it's also up to you, I guess, to turn those opportunities into, you know, um, more opportunities for yourself. And that was the question I then faced. Mm. So did you think then that you could achieve it? You could write a book in order to be, so it was a pivot point so that you would then be quoted next time? I I definitely uh, wanted to write a book. There had been an idea of, of this book in my head for, uh, for quite a while, for over a year. Um, and the idea had come to me while I was sitting on the sand dunes in the Arabian desert. And I thought, you know, this is that's where most of my good ideas were generated. But I thought, okay, there is an idea for a book. But you know, Joe, like so many people, I really doubted myself. And I doubted if I had it in me to, to write the kind of book that I wanted to, that I was envisioning and um, really like an authority piece, you know, um, but also really representative of who I was and, and sort of my non-traditional background, my non-Western, non-Western centric background. I really wanted to write something that would be like, oh, okay, you know, um, make people take notice. So I thought I could, but I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. And I also wasn't sure if just my own experiences and stories would be enough. Sure, maybe they could inspire people, but would they be enough to be, you know, the authority in a book? So that was definitely something I grappled with. I think that what you said there will resonate with many first time authors. So let, let's just set the scene even more. You set the sand, sand dune scene, which is lovely, but but where were you in your business at this moment? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So um, I mentioned I had a corporate career, which uh, I then uh, stopped in 2012 when I moved to Singapore, pregnant and unemployed, um, and decided to reinvent myself as an expat writer. So from 2012, I had been writing as a freelance writer 
and been doing various things. I'd also been on the editorial team of a magazine, a lifestyle magazine in Singapore, etc. And before that, even while I was an economist, I was the co-author of a very research-oriented academic book uh, published by Palgrave Macmillan, you know, something that's taught, you know, in lectures and seminars, uh, economic seminars uh, for college students. So I'd definitely done business writing before. Um, and uh, at this time, what had happened was when I'd moved to Dubai in 2016, I had set up my blog and then we moved to. So when, <clears throat> you know, the Wall Street Journal <laughs> didn't put my quote in the article, I had already been blogging for over a year, a year and a half, and I had already built up quite an audience. Um, I'd already been on Oprah. My expat life had been on featured on Oprah Winfrey Network as part of Super Soul Sunday. They slightly messed things up, but that's a whole different story. But my name was out there and I'd been nominated for best parent blog in Dubai and there was a lot of buzz. And so I guess the crucial point to note is that I had already um, built a blog and already had an audience. And I had already been to my first Families and Global Transition Conference as a writer so I had also a lot of experience from that and, you know, getting to know a few people, getting to understand the issues that were being discussed in the globally mobile world. So that's where I was in 2017. It was, I think, October, November of 2017. You were actually in, in I would say, a better place than a lot of people are when they start to write a book. So I hope that hasn't put some of the people off listening. It, it, it sounds very very grand really where you were um you weren't wrong though i mean just, you, it is a really good idea to start with the blog and not wait till you've written the book to then start blogging so you did do it the right way around by accident was it um yeah i think it was really by accident i don't think i would love to say i would have I had the foresight to to look ahead. But the truth is, Joe, as you know, I live such a messy mobile life myself that I don't really have a five year plan. I don't even have a five month plan, uh, to be very honest. <laughs> you know, I don't even know what's going to happen five months down the road. So I'd love to pretend that that was part of a big game plan. But but it wasn't. But I think, um, you know, we all have to start somewhere and, um, you know, just putting, you know, your ideas in a blog and connect with your audience, you can see what kinds of things and ideas are resonating with them. And that can really help you. Because you know, when you're starting out, you, you want to test the waters a bit and you want to gauge where is your writer's voice hitting that note? Where is it striking a chord with other people? And so blogging helped me to do that. It helped me to find my writer's voice and also see what kinds of issues and themes were people, you know, connecting with and what was resonating with them. Yeah, I think that's an extremely valid reason for starting with the blog. Um, it's not crucial. I can see I've already had a comment from Yvonne saying, so mine is the wrong way around. It is helpful to start with the blog for exactly the reasons that Marion has mentioned. So what did you do then? What did you put in place to then make this book writing dream come true? Mm -hmm. I think often when we have a dream, we may not know what to do, but maybe we know one person who can help us with or two people, or maybe we don't have the answer ourselves, but maybe we know someone who might be able to guide us in the right direction or give us that nudge or push. And so that's what I did. I, uh, I sort of looked at my, you know, circle and thought, well, who, who can help me visualize, uh, you know, this dream into, into reality. And, um, 
um, you know, you were one of the people, Joe, in my circle. Uh, you had been my writing mentor uh, for the writing scholarship that we did uh, the year before. And so, you know, I remember sending you a message and just saying, you know, there's this idea of a book in my head and I'd love to discuss it with you. And you were living in the Netherlands at the time. You had left Malaysia. You were in the Netherlands, in The Hague. And you said, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be in Dubai at the end of the month. So shall we have a chat then? <laughs> and, and that's sort of, you know, uh, how things got started. Mm -hmm. So um, I think just reaching out to people who could help you. Perhaps it's, you know, an author whose work you're familiar with. Or perhaps it's somebody who you know who might have been on a similar path. Um, it's really helpful. And, and what I love is that from my experience, I think writers and authors, they're such a great community. They love helping each other out and, and what they've learned and what they've shared and, you know, all the hard lessons they learn as they go along. So I think that's something that's, um, that's great. I mean, just, just reach out to anybody who you know in your circle who could help you point you in the right direction yeah I would agree and it doesn't have to be somebody who's a writing mentor it can be a fellow writer or somebody else who's been there done that so you wrote this messy mobile life so tell us a little bit about what it's about and who it's for Sure. Um, <clears throat> so um, I was just very frustrated, Joe, looking at the books that were out there at this time, because I felt either all the books dealt with third culture kids, how to raise them when your children are the ones experiencing mobility or a globally mobile life, or there were the ones <clears throat> who were uh, the books that were, you know, marketed by relocation professionals. And it talked all about how to make, uh, you know, that perfect move, your best move, how to move abroad, why moving abroad was the best thing you could do. And <clears throat> I just really wanted to write a book that portrayed a the reality of what a life abroad actually means. Um, and I really wanted the word messy in it, you know, in the title. Um, I really wanted one word that would capture both the good and the bad, um, because for me, that's really what living a globally mobile life is. One day you're crying into your coffee cup and the next day you're, you know, on cloud nine, right? And I really wanted to write a very realistic book, first of all. And I also, Joe, really wanted to write a book that would portray the current reality of a modern expat family. Um, I was a little bit, um, you know, just frustrated to see that that simple narrative being repeated over and over again, where you've got two people from the same country, they go to another country, and then they repatriate. And it's about expatriation versus repatriation. And then it's a full circle uh, journey. And, you know, that's not how life is for many of us. You know, we don't know where we're going to be next. And I read a statistic that really made me think. Um, and the statistic was that only 23 percent of expat um, uh, you know, partners and spouses end up repatriating. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what happens to the other uh, majority of people? You know, they just, they are, they go on, they go to a new country, they, they stay in their country, maybe long-term in the country that they're in. There's so many things that happen. And for me, it was about capturing that complexity. And for me, it was about capturing uh, also the complexity of what happens when you keep mixing these different cultures, these different languages, these different norms, Forms and ideas, and in return, how do they then shape our identity and our idea of home and our sense of belonging? So I really wanted to tackle all these messy threads of, of a mobile life that I felt uh, needed to be discussed. 
yeah and many many facets to your to your life so did you feel to your book sorry did you feel that the project was too big <laughs> yes absolutely i honestly felt overwhelmed joe because the project i was envisioning was truly big and a i had a lot of self-doubt a lot of imposter syndrome a lot of um you know uh just also realizing that my own experience may not be enough uh to write the kind of authoritative book i really wanted to write um and so yes in a nutshell i remember feeling overwhelmed and not quite sure where to start yeah well um you did it and you did exactly what i recommend a lot of people do in order to write this sort of a book i call it a how-to book you explained a co the concepts of which there were many with facts and information you then showed the point you were trying to make such as say how to raise multilingual children and you showed that by with examples from your own story you then showed the point you were trying to make or illustrated it again through the stories of other people so we've now got the information your story other people's story then you proved that what you were trying to say teach and show stood up because you got experts to then endorse what you were saying and and so you you did what i call say it show it prove it but in order to do that you had to call on a number of people you needed lots of people you needed case studies you needed experts so i'm now not looking at my list of questions here and just asking you how did you find them and why did you why did you want them and how did you find them yeah, that's a, that's a really good summary, actually, of where I was. Um, so there were <clears throat> there were two types of people who I needed to be able to write this book. One were the case studies, as you mentioned, Joe, uh, the people who were also living a globally mobile life. I wanted the book not just to be about myself and my experiences, but hear from other people's experiences. So that was one group of people who I wanted. Um, fellow expats, fellow internationals, fellow globally mobile families. Um, the way I reached out to them was A, through my blog. Again, having a blog really helped because that meant I already have so many people, so many families who I could reach out to. And um, just a quick note that, you know, the blog helps you really build relationships with people. So don't underestimate that because you need a relationship sometimes to ask people for, you know, help in filling out a survey or, you know, whatever it is that you need, which is actually what I decided to do in the end. Um, so, so everything is, is uh, you know, sort of connected in that sense. Um, but yeah, I, I uh, reached out to, to members in my, you know, my readers, uh, different people who were reading my blog, different globally mobile families. And I had made up a survey, a globally mobile survey that I was then able to uh, send to them and get their response uh, back, you know, and, and sort of see what themes were, were resonating with them, what issues were they facing. Um, they were encouraged to give anecdotal evidence and anecdotal you know, stories. Uh, and those actually ended up becoming the case studies in my book. So that was one way. And the other way was um, when I went to the FIGT conference, the Families and Global Transition Conference in 2018, I remember having made bookmarks for my book. I remember telling everybody who I was meeting 
that, hey, I have this book that, you know, I'm working on. And would you mind helping me? Would you mind taking my survey? I was there in the bookstore asking people to sign up to take my survey. And, you know, I was just uh, talking to everybody and anybody because experience has shown you never know where you're going to get help from. Right. So those were the two avenues that I um, got a lot of case studies from. And, um, I actually would want to stop you there because oh, I, sure. think it, I think what would be really interesting before we go on to the expert side of things was to, 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 to help the, the listeners here get an idea of how big the scale was of this. How many people did you have looking at your blog then before you started to reach out? What were your numbers like? Oh, and now I'm trying to think back. <laughs> um, I had uh, not that many, if I think about it, but I think it's the right type of people. For me, it was always more quality over quantity. I had not uh, got, you know, over 10,000 people on Facebook or Instagram. Um, for instance, I think I had about maybe I had 2000 people on Facebook, uh, you know, on my Facebook group, on my Facebook page. I had uh, I had a lot of hits to my website. I had over 30,000 visits to my website in a day. Having a website is a great way um, because not everyone's going to engage with you on social media. So actually, I, I actually don't look that much at my social media. I look more at the website and how many hits we're getting, how many people were sharing my content. That was a key thing for me as opposed to likes, you know, I don't really care so much about likes, but if someone shares your content, my ears would prick up because that means it resonated with them. So um, that was sort of the point I was at. But again, I was about a year into my blogging journey. So I didn't have amazing, you know, um, website traffic uh, back then, but I had a, a good amount going on. Mm. So you had a, that, that already sounds unattainable to many people. I'm sure you were very blase about it. How many surveys did you get back? Um, I think I got back around 150 surveys. Okay, well, that's, I that's may have. Good. Yeah, I may have gotten a few more, but I remember some were incomplete or some, you know, they were missing some information. So I remember I used about 150 uh, surveys. I think I may, must have received about maybe 170, 175. And for some reason, there was some incomplete information or, you know, for different reasons. I remember, yeah, that was about the amount I, um, I used. Well, I, th I think then if we were to, to summarize some of the things you've said that I think are incredibly important to your journey. One was this, you set up the blog to see what the themes were. Then you spoke to people to see what they were interested in and again to see what themes emerged. Um, so you used, you, you re it really helped you to find your focus mm -hmm. by doing those two things. But you did something, you did something else which was you asked you weren't scared to ask but you also gave something out because you gave out the bookmark which has made you memorable and Mariam you are the queen of making things look pretty I mean look at the books behind her on that shelf people Mariam when Mariam does the talk she matches her book when Mariam has a book launch she has the top of the cappuccino that's got a the the 
messy mobile life written on it. When she has a book launch, she makes a cake that matches her book. But it, it, it makes you so memorable. So I wonder whether my <laughs> Montara is going to do anything on turquoise because you, that's yeah, what I your colour has been. Oh. And um, so... So you've you've done the asking, you've made yourself memorable, and then you've done something else. You've really engaged, and those things have really helped. Would would you agree that those are the? Absolutely, I think, and I I mean I'm happy to also talk about the last step of the book journey. But before I get to that, I think it's it's important to highlight these points because when it comes in the end to promoting your book, Joe, as you know, um, having built those relationships really really helps because people want to buy a book from someone who they like, who they. Um, find interesting who someone who responds to their messages and comments and engages with them on their different platforms um, and I think in the end what you're doing really is an exchange of storytelling um, that really was what my book was about it was just a vehicle for me to tell my story and other people's stories and then use it to sort of get that exchange going so I felt in the end everything was connected to that the book launches the the speaking events I was trying to be a bit cheeky by promoting a book and, you know, getting my speaking uh, resume, my resume as a speaker at the same time attacking both things because, you know, um, your your credibility is sort of reinforced. People want to have you as a speaker because you have a book, but then, you know, they uh, also want, you know, you, they see you are a speaker. So it, it's, it's just all connected is what mm -hmm. I'm trying to say. Um, and um, I think really building those relationships helped me a lot because people were interested in my project and people were genuinely interested in also sharing it, um, which as you know, as a writer is super important. You need to have your, your cheerleaders, uh, you know, to sort of help you get the word out. Mm, thank you. So let's move on to the other half of my earlier question about the other people, the, the experts that you need to call on. Absolutely. I mean, I think the point to underscore here, Joe, is that, you know, um, I did not have a PhD in uh, linguistics for instance. And here I was wanting to write about how do you raise uh, children with multiple languages. But, you know, I hadn't I hadn't studied that. But so I had to look for some experts who had that knowledge, who had that specific knowledge, for instance, when it came to languages or when it came to cultures. You know, I have I have crossed cultures, many, many cultures, but I wanted to hear um, and include the voices of, you know, cross-cultural experts to lend my book even more authority. I thought that my personal stories would be inspiring and would set the scene and I would share my creative toolbox, which is my MOLA toolbox. Um, but I really wanted to bring the experts in. And as the book, uh, you know, began to take shape, I realized that in a nutshell, I was looking at three important uh, messy threads and those were um, culture, language and mobility. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, okay, well, I would love to have three experts who are experts on cross-cultural living, who are, you know, intercultural experts um, on blending cultures and, and get their expert advice in the book. I would love to have three experts who are, you know, experts in, in, in languages, in, in, in language acquisition 
or in you know um, one of my experts who's here today, uh, Soila, she she has studied specifically the sociology of bilingual interaction in families, which I thought was so fascinating, because. Another crucial point for me was to have experts who didn't just have the theoretical knowledge, but also that practical life experience and, and knowledge. So, you know, I that's why I reached out to, to people like Soila, who, who had not only done that academic work, but also knew what it was like, you know, raising trilingual kids herself. And I also had three experts on the mobility side. And of course, I had some, you know, really, um, amazing people like Ruth Van Rieken and, and Valerie Besancini and, and Kristen Duncombe, you know, who, who I thought of, who were my three experts, specifically on how mobility impacts your parenting. Um, so, you know, in the end, I had nine experts um, who were uh, sort of part of this panel um, who, uh, you know, gave their expertise uh, in the book. And, and that really elevated the book because then it's not just me, uh, you know, sharing my stories, but you also have the experts giving their advice and you have the experts responding to the case studies that had been gathered through the through the survey. All right. So you how so you you've said that quite broadly. So so let's let's take Soli, for example. How did you, what did you how did you get her involved? Did you write some text and then ask her to comment? Did you tell her what the topic was and get her to give you some ideas and then you wrote the text? What sort of order did it did it come in? That's a great question. Um, I remember making uh, documents, uh, nine documents for each of my nine experts and really honing in on their particular speciality and then coming up with um, three, uh, three things I wanted from them. One was a quote that would appear in the book, uh, basically their best advice on their topic. The second one uh, was that I would choose a case study. In fact, I ended up choosing two case studies for each expert to then comment on. And the third one was um, their advice to parents who were dealing with that particular challenge in their life. So those were three things. I kept it quite simple because when you're dealing with, you know, I'm writing a book, I'm getting research and getting the survey results back. I'm also trying to manage the, the, the nine experts, make sure everything is communicated in a, in a professional and timely way and, you know, be very clear on deadlines. So there's a lot <laughs> going on um, and a lot to manage. And again, that's where, that's the part I am, you know, where my previous skills could help me. Um, but, you know, um, I wanted to keep it clear. So I would, I sent them, this is, this is what I'm looking for uh, from you. And um, eight out of nine experts were people who had already, I had already met. And I actually was, you know, I knew them. So I had a great relationship with them. So it's quite easy. And, and Soila was the only one I think we hadn't met in person, but then, uh, you know, she said, oh, I'm going to be in Berlin this summer. And I said, well, I'm going to be in Berlin. So let's meet up. So we had a, a coffee in Berlin one morning um, while she was visiting and I was visiting and, you know, just sort of thawing out some of the ideas and, and, you know, just making sure that her, she, you know, her response to the case study was, was going to fit, you know, the tone of my book. And, and so, you know, we, we definitely had um, that going on with, uh, with the experts. But in the end, I think I gave my experts one month to uh, submit their work um, back to me. And, um, and then that was, that was uh, really helpful. So you were very strategic about it, but very clear how you, how you did it. So 
I actually can't remember exactly how it worked because I've worked with so many people since you, but I'm, it sounds to me like the way forward would be that you wrote the, the bones of the book, the skeleton of the book, and then you can plug in the case studies and select the right case, the right case studies. And then once you'd got that amount of meat on the bones, you were then able to reach out to the experts to then comment on it. Would that be accurate? Exactly. That would be accurate. I think um, by then I had quite a clear structure of how each chapter would look like uh, and what the ingredients of each chapter would be. So it was a personal story from my end. Then it was uh, setting the scene of, of which messy thread I would be uh, using and talking about and then bringing in my experts, showing them what they had to say about, let's say, crossing cultures um, and why culture is so important. And and then bringing in the other mobile families, making sure the case studies were in there, making sure the case studies were then responded, uh, you know, had a response from one of, one of my experts. And then in the end, building up my MOLA toolbox, using all of that together and coming up with a really creative way to then express that as a, as a takeaway for, for the reader. Um, you know, so um, that was truly, the, in, those were the ingredients of each chapter. And, and once, once I figure that out along with uh, some help from you I think it was really easy to to just keep doing that in each chapter so once the structure was there it was easy to follow it yeah I think that what we, we did was we came up with a roadmap for you so you then knew where you were going um, so you've reached out to lots of people there have been lots of bits and pieces to your book but do you think that you were very efficient in the way that you contacted and worked with um, with all these people? Because it can be so easy to ask for information, get way too much back, and have to, and then you have to throw lots of it away. What did you do in order to deal with that so that you were being efficient? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, especially the, the experts that I had, uh, such high caliber experts, so full of knowledge. Um, I wanted to make sure I used everything <laughs> that they sent back to me, nothing that, you know, would get, you know, wasted or anything. But I was very clear in terms of what I was asking them, what I was asking from them. Um, like I said, those three things, you know, a quote from them on this topic, their response to a case study and their best advice for someone else dealing with that issue or challenge. Um, and, and those three things. And then also I had some help and asked them for, you know, to help build my bibliography, like refer resources that you think as an expert, I should put in my book, which was actually very helpful, um, uh, you know, to do because in the end, my bibliography is made with the help of my experts. It's not just me, um, but all nine experts who said, well, you know, look at this as well, and, and this should be in there. So, so it was quite um, clear. And in the end, I'm glad I didn't have to waste anything. In fact, um, everything that I got back from the experts is in the book in one shape or form. I think you could start a, an arm of your business helping other people to get experts involved in their book because you've been so efficient with it. You really have. But the one thing that we haven't really talked about, though you've just touched on it, is we've got your stories. You've used other people's case studies. You've used the experts to prove everything. But then you went one step further and created something of your own. You created mm -hmm. the MOLA. So would you like to explain what MOLA stands for? and what you did with it in your book. 
Sure, sure. I mean, I, I wanted the creative energy of the book to come from me. Um, and uh, because I had all these amazing experts, I was also able to focus on the creative side of the book. So I um, came used the MOLA in, in two ways. Um, but first, I'll explain what exactly a MOLA is for anyone here who's listening who may not have heard of it or has no idea what I'm talking about. Um, a MOLA is quite simply a shirt, just like the shirt I'm wearing. Um, and it's a specific uh, shirt that comes from South America. Uh, the Guna tribe in Panama, they are the ones that stitch a mola um, by hand. And um, for me, what struck me was how a mola is made. Um, a mola, a shirt, is made um, by using several layers of brightly colored cloth, which are then uh, stitched one on top of the other. And the layers are, um, you know, uh, uh, they're stitched and they're closed and then you've got different colors peeking out from here and there and uh, the, the thread that they use is so fine it's almost invisible so you can't see it so you've got this beautiful design and you can't see the thread that's holding it all together and and they make it through using uh, the reverse applique uh, technique so when you turn a mola over it reveals this um, unique design and it's unique because it says something about the person who's made it, who stitched it together, something about his or her personal journey or cultural heritage. And um, for me, when I look at the MOLA, I thought this is the perfect metaphor for living a globally mobile life because that's actually what we're all doing. We're all busy stitching our life together and we have got all those layers and what are we hiding and what are we showing to people when we share our story? Um, so for me, it was the, the complexity of the MOLA that um, really captured the complexity of, uh, of, of expat life that I was trying to write about in my book. So AI used the MOLA as this metaphor. So throughout the book, you have a metaphor. So for instance, I tell you that um, your cultures, they are the fabric of your mola, because that's the basis of your design. Uh, your languages are the thread of your mola, because what do languages do? They help us to communicate and help us to join those dots together. And then I, you know, likened all the moves that you make as a globally mobile person or family to those extra layers in your design. And, uh, you know, we lead such a multi-layered life. And here was the MOLA, this multi-layered, you know, um, shirt that just captured it so perfectly. And um, I uh, just want to point out that there was uh, Norma McCaig who uh, had used the MOLA initially as a metaphor specifically specifically for third culture kids. And through the help of Ruth Van Rieken, uh, who helped me dig up some of her old work, who was a friend of Norma, um, I was able to then use uh, the MOLA. It's, uh, I see there's a question. It's just spelled M-O-L-A. So uh, M-O-L-A, just quite simply the MOLA. Um, I was able to use that and really incorporate all of that and expand that to fit not just TCKs, but also an entire family. And I came up with the, with the, with the new term called the MOLA family and, and tried to explain what a MOLA family would look like. And uh, the other thing I did, Joe, was to turn the MOLA into an acronym. So the M-O-L and A each stand for something. And I call that 
at my MOLA toolbox. So each of the elements, there's a, a step <laughs> that will take you from feeling like a mess to feeling like a MOLA. Wow. And so to tell us what the M, the O and the L and the A stand for. Uh, the M stands for mix. Um, the O stands for order. The L stands for layer. And the A stands for adventure. Mm. Yeah, it's just so enlightening, your book. And then, uh, then the other piece of the puzzle at the end of every chapter is you had an exercise, a family exercise that, that a family could do in order to explain the concept and sort of put it into practice in their lives, which I thought Absolutely. was a lovely, lovely touch. Yeah, we had exercises at the end of each chapter and also conversation starters for people to have at the dinner table with their own family. Because I don't know about you, Joe, but for us, we're living this hectic, messy mobile life and then something happens. And, you know, in that stressful moment, one, one of you wants to get on a plane, the other one doesn't. And, and truly, that's not the time to be having those conversations about what's important to you. And I thought that if I gave my readers um, conversation starters to have um, in a quiet, at a quiet time, you know, it would make their messy mobile life feel a little bit easier to handle because they would have had these conversations before being in, in a situation that required them to figure out what, 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 what's my response going to be. So exercises and conversation starters were very important to me. A great, a great book with so many aspects to it. So you've called on all these people did, how instrumental has having this huge team of people behind you been in helping you to have book launches, for example, all over the world? Uh, hugely, hugely helpful. Um, it's been, as you know, my, my main method uh, after the book was published in 2019 was to, <laughs> for a year, go around uh, from one country to the next, promoting the book, talking about it, um, and also using the book, uh, you know, to start conversations with people and to build those connections, to build those bridges, as you were mentioning, Joe, in your uh, address just uh, last week. Um, so having, uh, you know, the experts, having so many people whose case study was also in the book, um, it truly helped me in terms of, um, you know, when it came time to to uh, talk about the book, because I had people who were helping me from South Africa to the Netherlands. I had people who were, you know, recommending me to uh, the organizers of the bilingual fair in New York. And so, um, you know, I, I went to over, I think I went to nine countries and did multiple events in some of them like I did a lot of events in Dubai <laughs> one of my old hometowns I did I think I did seven or nine events in Ghana where I was living at the time you know I spoke at uh, women's clubs international clubs I spoke at international schools uh, anything that was to do with my book um, in South Africa I you know um, had help from relocation agencies to help you know do book launches there so for me the the beauty about writing a book that initially seemed so complex was in the end that um, the audience was people who were globally mobile and also people who were serving those who are globally mobile so actually it was everybody from relocation agents global mobility specialists HR of the companies to the expat families to the bilingual educators to uh, you know the schools uh, so you know, I used all of that, uh, all these different stakeholders to then help get the book out. And you even found one uh, one company who has sponsored some of your events. 
That's correct. That's correct. And I and I think it was um, you know it was quite a. I must admit I had I have no background in PR or marketing, and it was the first time I was doing all of these things. Um, so it was a lot of learning on the go. But actually, for me, that was the best part because it felt exciting. It felt like you know this is your your baby. It's your book, and you you're just learning so much as you go. So I made a lot of mistakes, Joe, as as anybody would. But in the end, I. I, you know, I don't know if I would do it any differently because I did end up learning so much <laughs> in the process. So uh, I, I, somebody has asked, how long did it take you to write the book? It does sound <laughs> like it would have taken the 10 years that Lisa had suggested. But oh, I love that question, Lisa. Um, so I, I will tell you exactly how long. Um, I did two months of pre-planning before pre-planning pre for the book before I wrote even one word. Um, I spent three months doing the survey and getting the survey results back. I spent a year writing and rewriting the book. Uh, I have to mention rewriting because in the end, I think I spent more time rewriting the book than I did on writing the book. And that's quite crucial. So one year I gave myself uh, just one goal for 2018. That was to write the book. And that's it. That was just my one goal for the year 2018. And then three months of um, you know, post post writing. So that was getting my book out to a couple of beta readers who would read the book and provide feedback. And then of course, editing design, book cover, all of that. So all in all, it took a year and a half, exactly one year, six months. Wow. Yeah, which is which is pretty normal, I have to say. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. Really, we could do a writing a how to book 101 for you. So you've said you've made some mistakes, but I want to we'll just finish with two questions. What do you think your biggest mistake was? Um, I think I underestimated uh, that promoting a book was literally a full time job. <laughs> I thought the hard part was writing the book. I didn't realize the hard part comes once the book is out there. Um, and, um, you know, I really, I really underestimated that it was a full-time job and uh, doing it with not a lot of experience was quite the learning, uh, you know, journey for me. Um, I got into all sorts of things. I had my book shipped to South Africa. They were held over by customs authority. I, you know, I mean, <laughs> I had, you know, to email contacts in, in Johannesburg say, I'm sorry, can you please pick up my books and I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll take you out for dinner once I'm there and just all sorts of things that could go wrong went wrong but you know in the end I really learned from each uh, each mistake um, the other mistake and this is this I would love to hear also your opinion on this Joe because you know as an author everyone tells you you need to have so many reviews on Amazon for your book to be successful and I really felt that pressure as a first-time author um, and so I definitely got a few reviews, but I, I, I know my book doesn't have as many reviews as maybe some other books do, or maybe as many as I could have gotten. And what was happening there was that, you know, I felt that people were really who were reading the book were liking it. But instead of putting a review on Amazon, they were just telling their friends to read it, you know, and, and in a way, I thought that was working really well, because it was word of mouth, people weren't necessarily posting their review on Amazon for the whole 
whole world to see, but they were recommending the book to their circle or to their expat friends or to whoever they thought it would benefit from reading the book. Maybe people married, you know, someone from someone to a different culture or raising their kids with different languages. So I don't know, this was something that really, um, I felt like I was making mistakes by not gathering enough reviews, but in the end, I felt the book still did quite well, even though it doesn't have so many Amazon reviews. Yeah, well, Amazon reviews help random people to find your book more than anything. And it also helps it to float up to the top of the um, of the search when people are searching. Um, and it also helps Amazon to want to keep it in stock and that sort of thing. So it does help. But the trouble mm -hmm. is with the reviews is that there's lots of different Amazons. They've just opened Amazon.nl in the Netherlands, yeah. apparently. And you yeah. have to have your reviews on all the different platforms. It's yeah. not good enough to just have them all on .com. So and that's 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 true, Joe. And you know, I just want to mention one other challenge I faced because I was going uh, to events and doing book launches, in-person book launches. I was selling books at the back of the uh, back of the you know room, right at the end. So when it came time to posting a review on Amazon, it was not a verified purchase because they had purchased the book from me in the room, and it wasn't showing up as a verified purchase. So Amazon would give people trouble in posting a review and. And that's actually what happened with me. I was selling 100, 200 books, you know, in one hour uh, standing, you know, in, in, in a school auditorium, but very few reviews were being posted on Amazon because they weren't allowed to show up because it wasn't a verified purchase. So for me, I, I really had to almost convince myself, okay, I don't focus so much on, on that. Focus on how much your message is resonating with people and focus on whether they are recommending it to other people. Um, and it, yeah, I think, I don't know if that's a big mistake because normally all the traditional authors, everyone will tell you, no, it's all about the reviews. And I don't know, I really enjoy just making those connections with people. And sometimes they just message me their review. And for me, that was okay. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I didn't make such a big deal out of it, but I know a lot of authors can get really bogged down because it is so hard to get those reviews. Um, yeah, um, I know. I know it can be hard to get them, but the, the other irony is that you make more money selling back of the room than you do on Amazon. So. <laughs> and also, if Mariam, at the end of the day, you want to be seen as an expert and an authority, you're achieving that without the Amazon reviews. So you're you're you are achieving what you set out to do so we've had what you think might be your biggest mistake i think many people to underestimate the amount of promotion you have to do um what do you think what would you definitely want to recommend to somebody else as something that you got absolutely right and you think other people should do um i think before writing a book um build your audience before you write a book um um, because I think it's going to really help. Uh, you're, you will have people who already resonate with you, with your work. Um, I think it's very, I think it's a lot harder, quite honestly, to have a book and then build an audience um, because you're working almost against, you know, uh, everything. And, and, and I think people don't like uh, someone who is so salesly, salesy and constantly saying, oh, but I've written a book on this. I've written, you know, check this out. I mean, 
in the end, I think writing a book is about building relationships. So focus on building relationships with, with your readers. Um, I think that is truly going to serve you no matter if you continue just blogging or you write a book or you whatever it is you do, I think make sure that you're focused on the authenticity of your connections um, because the same people will then definitely want to hear from you, uh, not just maybe be interested in one book you write, but maybe be interested in the second one you write as well I think so just think long term would be my idea and my suggestion because I think in the end it's truly about building bridges building those relationships mm. with mm. your readers excellent excellent answers well we've have had some questions here so let's um let's start see what questions that we've got here um Emma has said that blogging has really helped her um, it has really helped her when she's been a bit lost too. Mm -hmm. um, and Sarah would like to say how much she thought your exchange of storytelling was a really good idea. Yes, I like that one too. I, I'd not heard that before. Um, then we're just getting down to the questions. We've got how do you spell <laughs> MOLA? Well, we've got that. We've got that. Um, we asked that question, how long did it take for you to write it? And then Lisa asked a very interesting question. Did you have formal agreements with your book contributors? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Lisa, for asking that question. I think I forgot to mention that I did have a uh, I did have a contract uh, that uh, I sent to uh, the experts ahead of time. And it and it so it, it outlines everything in terms of copy copyright, it outlines uh, exactly what they would get in return, for instance, their names, I don't know if you can see this, oops, their names are at the back of the book, you know, so all of these terms and agreements were uh, mentioned in that. Yeah, uh, and we can help you with those if anybody wants to know about that. And Lisa also wants to know, will you write another one? <laughs> uh, Lisa, the, the short answer to your question is yes, except I uh, want to switch gears and write a fiction uh, book. Mm -hmm. So um, that's something I'm definitely thinking of, um, perhaps when the dust settles a bit. Uh, as, as, as you know, I not just write about leading a mobile life, but I actually live a very messy mobile life. So it's been quite the year of relocating in a pandemic and giving birth and all of that. Um, um, so the idea is definitely there. I think I'm at the stage where all the ideas are coming in and I'm letting them come in. I'm in a new country and just sort of taking all that inspiration as it comes. And then the, the, the plan is to definitely get started on the next one once the time is right. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's great. Well, thank you very much. I think we'll stop these questions now and then we'll just go into the informal chat and you can put your cameras on. So thank you so much, Mariam. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, you will be able to see a written version of this on my blog, The Monthly Inspirer, uh, probably for on May the 1st, that will probably go out. Um, and uh, you will also be able to see this video on YouTube anytime and also on my website in a week or two. So thank you very much indeed. I shall stop the recording now. And thank <laughs> you, Marianne. Thank you, Joe. It's such a pleasure to come and talk about uh, how our ideas <laughs> end up. Um, coming out and in life. And um, I think it's it's so important to back ourselves up. I know a lot of us feel like we can't do it. Um, 
And I just wanted to make one last point. I don't know if we're still recording. It doesn't matter if we're not recording, we but are. I think a lot of people ask like, what is you know the cornerstone of success? And, and for me, it's not really hard work or determination or any of those things, but it's just simply believing in yourself. And I think that if you believe in yourself, it can be the most powerful thing that you do for yourself in your journey, because um, other people will believe you and believe in you when you believe in yourself. So a lot of us, I think, struggle with that. And I think that's a crucial part of this journey. I think that's a really important point you've just made. I have struggled with the believing in myself bit, and I found a way of making that much easier. And that is, a, it's not, you don't have to totally believe in yourself, but you do have to 110% believe in your idea mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, think I love that easier I love to believe that. in your idea so yeah. thank you Mariam thank you Joe <laughs>